What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This episode is brought to you by Nutrafol. Nutrafol is formulated with potent botanicals to help you grow strong hair, and it's physician formulated to be 100% drug-free. They use natural, clinically effective botanicals for better hair growth through whole body health. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code a thing or two to get 20% off. This is their best offer available anywhere, plus free shipping on every order. Get 20% off at Nutrafol.com, promo code a thing or two. Their best offer anywhere, 20% off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L. Dot com promo code a thing or two for hair as strong as you are. Welcome to a thing or two, a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. I'm Claire Mazer. And I'm Erica Cerullo. You might know us as the co-founders of Of A Kind, the co-authors of Work Wife, or just two women who feel so strongly about their relationship that they own the domain claireanderica.com. Related, head there and sign up for a newsletter, find episode notes, all that jazz. And leave us a voicemail at 833-632-5463. Check out our Instagram at a thing or two HQ. And if you love our podcast, please subscribe to it and leave us a review. Reviews really help other people find our podcast. They do. They do. They really do. Okay. So something that we wanted to get into is like a half follow-up to an Mm -hmm. episode we did a while ago about how we think about social media. And let's be honest, just how we think about Instagram, because that's the only social media we we (laughs) really think about. (laughs) When we say social media, we say Instagram. Although I will say I now in the last, I guess like three weeks, my social media consumption has increased to Twitter in a really big way in a way that it hasn't, but I'm I'm still not posting anywhere. No, no, no. No, not me either. Me either. I look at it. I don't post. Um, And then at some point I have to like, basically like throw my phone to the ground. Yes. It's it's like (laughs) so fiery and hot. Um, (laughs) So, you know, it's interesting because I think that episode went up uh, maybe like a few weeks to a month before... George Floyd's murder and at which point Instagram especially, but all of social media took a real turn where it all of a sudden became almost fully focused on the Black Lives Matter movement. And we had touched in our original episode on social media on our sort of grappling with social media activism basically and our levels of comfortability with it and whether or not, you know, we felt obligated to partake in it, whether or not we felt like it was 
the purpose whether we of were our feeds. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And whether we were equipped to be doing it. Yeah. Um, whether we were the best sources of this information too. Exactly. I love this uh, article that you pulled by Andrea Whittle for, on, from W Magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sort of explains, I think, pretty succinctly the way that Instagram just shifted over the course yeah. of the last month or so. Yeah. And she she does do a really good job summarizing how it went from like brunch pictures and pretty pictures of your house or whatever to just being fully focused on statements of solidarity, um, commitments to change and to activism, spreading of information. And it suddenly felt incredibly tone deaf to be posting anything that didn't relate to that. And part of the article is her questioning, will Instagram ever go back to what it used to be? And she says, you know, probably, um, you know, and she compares it in some ways to how after 9-11, it felt like there was no place for satire. There was no place for humor and everybody wondered when it would come back. And, you know, lo and behold, it eventually came back. But I think what really has shifted, and I will speak for myself, but I think for a lot of people is a sense of one's role in the Instagram ecosystem when it comes to spreading information and when it comes to making statements of solidarity. And I will say that I did do a lot of thinking around like, well, if I don't normally post about this stuff and I don't normally post about other stuff, you know, should I post about this now? now? Right. What's my place now? And does it seem performative and does it seem too late? And am I going to screw up? And, you know, the conclusion that I came to and that I think a lot of people have come to is that whatever fears, uncomfortability, insecurities one has around that are A, pretty self-centered and B, pale in comparison to the fears and discomfort that Black people and other marginalized communities are dealing with. And so, yeah, you are going to screw up, but better to try and better to to make the statement and spread the information. And I think, I think those are sort of, there's like those, those are sort of the two, the two types of posting right now that I'm still trying to figure out how to get right. One, the statement of solidarity and two, the spreading of information and what my role is and should be in all of that. How are you thinking about it? I mean, I think the thing that really shifted for me um, and which has probably been over the last two weeks, honestly, or, or, you know, is really the like, what am I actually adding to this conversation? And Mm -hmm. I think my perspective on that has changed because I think for a long time, it was feeling performative or virtue signaling or narcissistic to be uh, posting in a way that felt like, you know, just like an image of like, for example, a Black Trans Lives Matter image where I felt like, what purpose is this serving? It just feels like putting a pretty graphic up that uh, expresses something that that people follow me must know that I believe to be true. Mm -hmm. I think understanding now that like that is not first of all how do i know what people think of me right. based on what they're following like they don't these are not it's not like i have 50 followers who are all personal close personal friends so it's <laughs> completely insane for me to to project a sense of what i think people think of me or my perspectives on the world without sharing those things my sense of how people understand me on social media hasn't shifted to reflect the experience of people actually following me. Yes. And it's not appropriate or fair for me to make any assumptions about what anyone would perceive of me beyond what I'm putting out there into the world. Right. 
Um, like, no, I mean, you well, don't the, know me. Yeah. <laughs> and this gets into like a more, you know, a, an unrelated topic, but something that we sort of joke about a lot, which is that I often expect our audience to be completists, meaning they've read every single <laughs> yeah. newsletter, they've listened to every single podcast, and they've seen every single social media post. As if and, you and I are like that with most yeah. of the like, no, content of and brands that we care about. I mean, that's just, yeah. it's like, so stupid. Right. But then um, when someone comes at me and they're like, well, why didn't you, or why did you say, and I'm like, well, we did it last week. And it's like, <laughs> well, they weren't paying attention last week. They were on vacation, whatever. They were busy. So yeah, it's certainly, you're right. You know, it, it, the onus is on us to make those statements and make those things clear. Thank you so much to Nutrafol for sponsoring today's episode. So I was talking to my parents the other night and apparently in addition to Scrabble and puzzles, one of their quarantine activities has been comparing their their thinning hair. Mm. Um, yeah. Doesn't it sound like a lot of fun? Yeah. Um, truly one of... <laughs> truly just another thing to look forward to as we age, like the billy goat hairs poking out of our chins, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. thinning hair, which makes me especially excited to try Nutrafol. Nutrafol is formulated with potent botanicals to help you grow strong hair, and it's physician formulated to be 100% drug-free. They use natural, clinically effective botanicals for better hair growth through whole body health. Visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz for customized product recommendations that put the power to grow thicker, stronger hair back into your hands. When you subscribe, you'll receive monthly deliveries so you never miss a dose. Shipping is free, and you can pause or cancel anytime. 77% of women saw improvements in just 90 days with Nutrafol. In a time when self-care is more important than ever, every day is an opportunity to skip damaging styling tools and chemicals and focus more on better hair growth from within. Even if you aren't experiencing thinning hair, Nutrafol can help you grow thicker, stronger hair. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show. Wow, two birds with one stone by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code a thing or two to get 20% off. This is their best offer available anywhere. Plus free shipping on every order. Get 20% off at Nutrafol.com, promo code a thing or two. Their best offer anywhere. 20% off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code a thing or two for hair as strong as you are. I think the other thing that I recognized, you know, when I was sitting down thinking about all of this and what role to play, I went back and looked through old Instagrams to sort of be like, how have I dealt with this in the past? And would this be the first time I'm doing this? Not that that should make a difference either way. And I noted there were sort of two things that I picked up on. One that like, yes, I had posted about this stuff in the past when it had sort of reached a fever pitch and it made me feel ashamed on some level that I that, that was only when I was posting about it. But not only that, but that, I was posting about things that feel really personal to me. So, you know, maybe things related to pregnancy or motherhood or whatever that felt um, like injustices. And that I wasn't relating to this because maybe because it's not impacting me personally on an everyday basis, which in fact it is whether or not I'm aware of it, whether or not I'm hyper aware of it. That felt really problematic to me. And the thing that I always grapple with is this idea of like, well, if everyone else is posting it, do I need to be posting it too? And what I realized is, well, I get a lot out of everybody else posting about it. Like when everybody else is posting about it and I'm seeing something constantly, I become aware of it. And I 
that's something I benefit from. So why wouldn't I want to contribute to that thing that I am also finding valuable? Yeah, that has been interesting for me to think about more and to think about what things are helpful for me to see repeated. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I do, I think, you know, you and I are very like live in this space where we like discovering new things. And so when things get shared a lot, we're like, oh, it's old news. Yeah, totally. Which well, this is, I doesn't apply here. We've been writing some form of our Monday newsletter for probably like eight years now more. And a big part of the sort of like editorial approach to that is that we are surfacing something new that and if and you and I will sometimes put things in and then write, you know, check with the other one and say like, has this been shared too much? Does everybody know about this already? And if it has, then we're like, it's not really appropriate for the newsletter. And I think that that mindset has sort of infiltrated all platforms. And the truth is that not all platforms are the same. Yes, 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 yes. And I think so. I I think it's really helpful when c- certain things are shared over and over and over again, especially things that involve calls to action, like mm-hmm. you know, requests an absentee ballot. And those are things that it's like people have to go do something, and they maybe it's the seventh time they see it where they're like, okay, I'm actually now sitting at a computer and can do this or whatever. Yep. It's like the sharing of memes or or like uh, screenshots of tweets. 500 times. And I'm like, you guys, we've seen it. Or if we haven't, like, I don't know. Well, so, okay. Yes. But then this gets into the other issue that you and I have been talking a lot about, which is that I used to always say this thing, we're all on the same internet. Yeah. I think if anything has disproven that idea, the last couple of weeks have been that, that we're not all on the same internet. We're not all on the same internet. And so maybe even though, you know, I've seen it 500 times, somebody I went to high school with who's on a very different internet than I am, but also follows me has not seen it 5 million times. No, it's true. And it's really challenging. And I think over the last week, especially, I think I've done some more just like digging into why am I like, of course, I know that we all have different internet. Of course, I know that we're all getting different, serve different information because we follow different people and the godforsaken algorithms. Yeah. Um, But I think there have been two things that have sort of kept me from fully realizing that or fully embracing that when I think about how I engage with social media. One is that I um, went through the exercise last week. Elizabeth Spiridakis, I think, posted this on her and her stories about basically just looking to see who you follow, who follows Trump. You know, and- I like have a sick hobby of doing this with Ivanka Trump because way too many people. I mean, that makes me nervous. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That makes me nervous. So, uh, you know, I, I made my first (laughs) visit to uh, Donald Trump's Instagram account and there's this one person, one person who, you know, is like a problematic fave in my life who was like a person I went to high school with. And it is not at all shocking that this person, um, engages in this way. I have one person that I follow who actively likes his posts, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, gives that false sense that like we're all on the same team um, when I'm engaging with content. Well, this is why I found this graphic really helpful that I posted from this Instagram user named Nanders. Um, She's been doing these really like very helpful Instagram story graphics. And she basically posts this spectrum, right? That all of these circles um, overlap. And at the top of the spectrum of these circles, you have Black activists, and then you have woke white people, and then you have semi-woke white people, all the way down to people still posting about brunch in the midst of all of this. And then at the very bottom, white supremacists. And she's like, 
here's where I occupy somewhere near the top. Nobody at the bottom follows me, but some of the people posting about brunch follow me and the white supremacists follow those people. And so the only way to effectively get information down the feed is for everybody to be posting about it. And so it's like, right, you're no, no white supremacists are following you and you're yep. not going to influence the way that they think, but maybe the people posting about brunch, you can influence them and then they're going to maybe influence the white supremacists. I mean, it's a reductive way of thinking about it, but it's it's a way of thinking about it. Now, I think the other thing, and I think, you know, you and I both come from this place where you're so lucky to have parents who are liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so lucky to have parents who we don't have to have conversations with yep. about who they should be voting for right. or uh, the ideals that they should value. Mm-hmm. But I think that also fucks up my perspective. Yeah. Um, yep. Because my dad was texting about defunding the police a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. you know, as yep. like these like explainers were coming out. Yep. He was engaging with these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that again creates this bad bubble for me to be operating in. I also think, you know, back to what you were saying about sharing about pregnancy or about uh, women's issues. You are so much better and so much more comfortable at sharing feelings Mm -hmm. um, and like personal stories publicly than I am. And I think that's something that I have to that I grapple with and just have to like work on or accept or I don't know, but that is like a feature. (laughs) I mean... I do think, I mean, that's right. And it, there's no, I don't, <laughs> there's no value judgment either way because there's certainly something to be said for not uh, doing that stuff. And I do actually think you're hitting on something really interesting and important about this moment, which is that lots of people are like, my Instagram isn't for activism. My Instagram isn't for sharing feelings. And that's just like not yeah, everybody how I use this platform, strategy, right? right? Yeah. yeah. And And like, I just share pictures of my kid or I just share pictures of this so I don't participate in these moments. And I think what shifted about this moment was that it felt like it doesn't matter if you even have an Instagram account, it's on you to participate in some way. And if you have an Instagram account, that is an appropriate place to do so. If you have a body, then take it to a protest. If you have, you know, whatever it is, if you have a telephone, make a phone call. Um, And I think it all of a sudden, I think... Yeah, I'm not going to do the best job articulating this, but I think it suddenly became clear to every single American and obviously a lot of people outside of America too, who, for lack of a better way of putting this, have a conscience, realize that they absolutely were part of this system and therefore needed to be part of trying to dismantle it. And But that does, as you just said, that is the same thing as saying, I have like sharing your feelings about something, which it, it can feel not comfortable for people. And... Um, yeah, I think this whole moment is a whole range of spectrum of discomfort. And for uh, people who look like you and me, we've had to say like, well, the discomfort pales in comparison to the discomfort of the people being oppressed by this. Of course. I mean, I think there's also the sense that because this is a place where we all spend more time than we'd like to admit um, mm-hmm. on our phones, scrolling through these feeds you can give it outsized importance um, in terms of the actual repercussions of these things. Yes. And I think that is also something that I've had to very sort of actively think about when, you know, like someone will respond on Instagram and be like, you should share about this and you should share about that. And it's like, I'm doing other things other places. Mm-hmm. Like that actually, you know, as far as in, in my personal evaluation, 
are more powerful or more impactful or more meaningful than posting this thing right now. And at best, sharing on Instagram plants seeds. Like it's not going to change things. It doesn't induce change. It can like help shift perspectives. It can, you know, help mobilize people to do other things. But as we all know from Blackout Tuesday, (laughs) that's not actually the answer to a question. And I think there was an episode of Mary H.K. Choi's Micropod that we both really loved mm-hmm. um, getting into, you know, just like the experience of thinking about uh, social media and just various forms of activism right now and getting comfortable calling uh, representatives and the cold sweats involved in doing that. And then just thinking about, you know, like the narcissism involved in all of this um, mm-hmm. and the fact that by spending time thinking about, oh, like, you know, should I do this or should I do that? Or should I, you know, do I share this or do I post about that? Or do I call this or do I go to this? You're just inherently centering yourself, Mm -hmm. um, which feels so shitty because it's not the point. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, the other thing I will say about all of this is it has, and that you were touching on a little bit here too, is that Starting with the pandemic, but especially with the Black Lives Matter movement that has swelled in this particular incarnation, my relationship to how much time I should be spending on social media has changed. Yeah. Where I used to shame myself for it a lot. And now it sort of feels like things are uh, shifting so rapidly. Mainstream media is not keeping up and cannot necessarily be trusted. And being on Twitter and Instagram makes me feel included in a way, connected, included in a way that I want to be. Um, and I'm getting perspectives that I think are really important. It's like, you know, and, and I will say, especially on Twitter, even just hearing, you know, Black people say like, I'm not comfortable with the term BIPOC. I don't think that Indigenous people should be, um, grouped in with Black people. And like these, these more nuanced perspectives that I'm not getting as quickly from the New York Times that feel like I need to be aware of, especially because I am creating content. I all of a sudden actually feel like I need to be looking at Instagram and not sh- and Twitter and not shaming myself for it so much. Oh, 100%. I mean, I will joke. I have, you know, the time limit set up for social media yeah. on my phone. And and like halfway through breakfast, it'll be oh, like, yeah. oop, your time's up. And Tom's <laughs> like, oh, okay. It's like 8.40. Congratulations. Yeah. It's a rapidly evolving perspective shift. And I don't have all the answers, but I can say that it has certainly shifted from the last time we talked about this. A hundred percent. Can we also touch on one thing before we go? Um, yes. Which is the approach that you've taken, which I think is, or, or sort of like the, the main approach you've taken, which I think is A, really valuable, B, a nice way to think about it and see something that speaks to something you are comfortable with, which has been sharing Black-owned businesses. Yes. And that was like, the impetus for that was feeling so helpless and worthless and like I had nothing new to contribute and I had no value as an activist and I had no confidence in my ability to share things in a meaningful way. And so, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, as this conversation around 15% pledge started by Aurora James of Brother Valley's um, about giving 15% of shelf space to Black-owned businesses was started to pick up a little steam. I was like, oh, I can think about some Black-owned businesses mm-hmm. that I already know and start yeah. sharing those things. And, you know, I, I it felt really 
productive, which is again, a problem that I have of like judging uh, my own like worth on productivity. And I have gotten just a lot of response from people who are like, I bought this thing or I bought that thing. Yeah. And that has been, like that has felt weirdly satisfying yeah. to be like someone else opened their wallet, paid $46 for something because this was shared here. Right. And that's something that speaks to your strengths. It also sort of gets around this idea of like, you're not super comfortable writing a lengthy caption about your yeah. personal emotions tied to all of this, but it is a way yeah. of saying that you feel this way that you stand in solidarity with this movement and here's something that you can contribute. And I do think that that's a way for people to think about it if they're not super comfortable with it, with, no, uh, it's with true. other forms of social media activism. Agreed, agreed. Well, let's bring on our guests. It's, um, it feels timely to be having a conversation with these two in light mm -hmm. of conversations that have been happening in, around the food world mm -hmm. and, you know, food world so white, um, yes. <laughs> basically. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by So Squad. So Squad is a DIY fashion brand that celebrates the youthful creative spirit in all of us. Their line of easy-to-make, fun-to-wear fashion projects include trendy, beginner-friendly sewing patterns and their new fabric fake-out iron-on prints. Each zine-inspired kit is based off of the season's hottest looks and designed to blow the dust off of old-school crafting. And we are admittedly kind of burying the lead here, but none of their projects require a sewing machine, which feels pretty major for someone like me who is extremely intimidated by the idea of even threading a sewing machine. Sew Squad is a youth-focused line that makes DIY-style fashionable and sustainable fashion easy. You can upcycle old fast fashion buys or extend the life of something you once loved without having to be a master seamstress. With over 19 years of fashion industry experience, Sew Squad founder Zoe Washington wanted to bring the sewing and crafting industries into the digital era. She's worked as a stylist, writer, and fashion editor with media powerhouses like Marie Claire, Essence, Vogue, Elle, and InStyle. And more recently, Zoe worked as fashion director at Britain Co. and as fashion and beauty editor for Bravo TV. The Sew Squad's motto is simple. Make it, wear it, share it. Sign up now at www.sosquad.com for their newsletter and to get free shipping on your first order. That's www.sewsquad.com for their newsletter and to get free shipping on your first order. Today's episode is also brought to you by The Renee. I so, so love what this company is doing. After founder Whitney Robinson experienced late pregnancy loss, home births, and a recent 102-day NICU stay, she asked herself, when given the opportunity, how might Black women change maternal health? She started the Renee with the intention of seeing positive change rapidly. The Renee is a movement to redesign Black and Brown maternal experiences with Black and Brown folks at the helm. Their jam sessions serve as a space where culture meets design thinking, and they serve as intimate yet impactful events for women of color to come together and redesign the current state of maternal health. Spaces are inviting and joyful, challenging, and changing the narrative around bodies and children one idea at a time. Whether you're trying to conceive, baby is in your womb, in your arms, or only able to be cherished in your memory, the Renee believes that your experience is valuable and that your story is necessary. In addition to their jam sessions, the Renee also consults with health and wellness organizations and tech companies to help them identify pain points and ways to directly address disparities. To learn more and to register for a jam session, head to the-renee.com. That's T-H-E hyphen R-E-N-E-E.com the-renee.com. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes. Join me every Monday for a new episode of my podcast, Recovering from Reality 
Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, I'm here to deliver intimate conversations and expert insights to empower you on the road towards authentic wellness. So are you ready to recover from reality? We are here with Vanessa and Kim Pham, who are the co-founders of Omsom, and they are sisters. They are the daughters of Vietnamese refugees and before launching their company, which I think is our quarantine kitchen savior. Truly. Um, they, they worked <laughs> in startups and in management consulting, and for their new business, they collaborated with the New York restaurants Fish Cheeks, Jeepney, and Madame Vo on their debut sauces. We are so excited to have you two. Thank, oh, thank you for you. having us. We're so excited to be here. We're both obsessed. When obsessed. <laughs> when we heard about Amsam for the first time, we could not jump on top of it quickly enough to be like, wow, this is so up our alley. Because also these are restaurants that we love, but cuisines that we really love. And then it came and honestly, it it blew my expectations out of the water. Well, you and I made the LARB the same night yep. and then we're just texting back and forth about <laughs> no. it. And then I had to send it to my family group text to be like, because I, we had told them when it launched and then had to be like, but did you order it yet? Because yep. you're going to need to order it now. <laughs> and thank so God I got you- a picture from my dad last night that he made the LARB no, and what? he's super psyched about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it also oh managed gosh. the spiciness so my moms could be less spicy mm-hmm. and like this was yes. such a win. Oh my God. I have, I love hearing those stories. I have so many questions for you. So we have to jump in. How did you guys come up with the <laughs> yes, idea? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, Vanessa, this is Kim here. Um, Vanessa and I are first generation Vietnamese Americans, um, daughters of refugees. And we basically, you know, have like cut our teeth in our careers, but then we really wanted to start something that we could feel like deeply passionate about as individuals. And so I think we just kind of took a look at this, you know, quote unquote ethnic aisle. And found that, you know, in most mainstream grocery stores, it's like stepping back in time when you walk down those aisles, you know. Because there is also an aisle that it is an ethnic (laughs) aisle. (laughs) Called that. The fact that it even exists. Yes. Precisely. And so we're just like, okay, this kind of sucks. Like a lot of the products aren't loved by both kind of Asian and non-Asian consumers alike. Um, And they're just sad and they're kind of outdated. And like, what if we reimagine this category to also map to the changing DNA of this country? And so, yeah, we just set out to do exactly that. And Amsam was born from that North Star of reclaiming and celebrating Asian flavors, Asian cuisines, and therefore Asian communities. There's also (laughs) been a lot of discussion recently about representation in food. I think we had just constantly been forced to make a call when we were at mainstream grocery in mainstream grocery stores being like okay you know I don't have time today to like run around run down to Chinatown and grab all these different ingredients and and stock up a full pantry of you know different sauces spices and seasonings but I really am craving these flavors so what do I do do I kind of you know just rely on what's here and kind of um, compromise or do I you know, order from a restaurant and spend like three times the amount of money that I want to plan to tonight. Um, And so ultimately, I think what we kind of realized was like, we were living this every day. We were realizing that these flavors were not representing us well, our cultures well, and they weren't being thoughtfully made or crafted by um, people of these backgrounds. And so that's kind of what informed our whole approach to to bringing on the chefs that we do. We call them tastemakers because we really wanted folks of these backgrounds to, to be creating the flavors in hand with us um, to really honor and like celebrate the communities represented. How did you think about what chefs you wanted to work with first and how did you uh, approach those chefs and onboard them for this concept? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think it's all kind of like, it's in the name itself, right? So they're called tastemakers for a reason. One, yes, they sling like really amazing dishes from their restaurants. As, as you two have said, like, you know, their fish cheeks, Jeepney and Madame Beau are definitely beloved. But I think kind of the second piece that got us really excited to work with these chefs in particular is that they are really, as individuals, redefining what it means to eat Filipino, Thai, and Vietnamese food in 2020, right? So like, there's a larger discussion to be had probably around how authenticity is a burden that only POC communities bear. But what we love about each of them is that they're each kind of shining a light on underlooked or, I mean, sorry, overlooked or like kind of underappreciated aspects of their cuisines and therefore of their cultures. So um, Nicole Ponseca of Jeepney has her incredible cookbook, I'm a Filipino, which is the Philippines in general is like a very unique kind of uh, country and cuisine in the continent of Asia anyways. And she does an amazing job of bringing light to that. So yeah, she's, she's incredible to work with. And she was, uh, she partnered with us on the C6 starter. Jimmy, Chef Jimmy Lee of Madame Vogue, he's kind of like a brother to us. He's the bomb. His second restaurant is Madame Vogue Barbecue, showing that like Vietnamese barbecue culture is a thing. I think a lot of folks think about like Korean barbecue or perhaps even Japanese barbecue, but not a lot of folks know about Vietnamese barbecue. So it's really great to, to partner with him. And then the Fish Cheeks Brothers. Um, we obviously love a good sibling story. <laughs> um, and I think the thing we love about them is that, you know, historically in the US, Thai food has kind of been kind of very sweet to meet American palates. And I think when they started Fish Cheeks, they're like, nope, like that's not what this is about. We're not going to pull our punches on flavor. We're not going to pull our punches on our peppers. Like this is full fledged real deal Thai. And so therefore like, you know, the larb starter, if you kind of put it all in there, it's, it's very, very spicy. So there are folks that, you know, we just deeply respect and who we think are really pioneering, you know, these cuisines in, in the U.S. One of the things that I immediately noted about your sauces is that they don't have the sort of, there's like a sort of, sort of sourness to a lot of store-bought sauces that, and I don't know mm-hmm. if it's citric acid, I don't know what it is, but it just feels like it shows up in every store-bought sauce and it is not at all <laughs> present in the om, in the Amsam sauces. And I'm so curious about what the process looked like for you guys in terms of collaborating with these chefs and adapting their recipes to work in a shelf-stable pouch, basically, and how you figured out a way to avoid those pitfalls of of store-bought sauces. And just of handling food production in general as people who don't come (laughs) from that background. That is intimidating. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> this is Vanessa's world. She's going to nerd out. <laughs> yeah. So um, I do all of the supply chain operations and, and product development um, hand in hand with the chefs. And you're right when you say that that sounds challenging. Like it was, is definitely one of the hardest parts of building this company. But I also think it's like the work and intentionality that we put in is really what allows our product to kind of speak for itself. And so, um, yeah, what that product looked like was, it was a long process where the chefs were involved, like from day one like concepting the dish, um, coming up with the initial first recipe and then iterating, you know, six, seven or more times on, um, that different versions of it was really like an amazing learning process for me. And I think like what I, what I would say is that going into it, I think we knew it would be a challenge working with chefs to develop products because they're used to producing things in the kitchen where you don't have to worry about shelf stability. You don't have to worry about like manufacturing and the process behind it. But we knew that like having their bar be our bar was really important if we wanted something to actually, that would actually make these Asian communities like proud of 
of what we're doing. Um, and so we took on that challenge early on. There are definitely times where we're like, oh, wow, were we in over <laughs> our heads? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the process was, you know, us starting out with them, picking the dish, working with them on a kitchen recipe. And then we also have um, our own kind of like food scientist who works really closely with us. And it was basically a process of working with them, taking their kitchen recipe and then turning it into a shelf-stable process and product in which we use uh, no preservatives, no artificial flavors, and then going back to them with a version and then going in the kitchen, cooking it with them, which was like tons of fun, cooking multiple versions and fiercely taking notes and like taking photos of the process and then going back and reworking it, going back to them. So this really uh, iterative back and forth process that took many months. Um, and then along the way, um, we're also working to source all the ingredients and we take a really unique approach to sourcing, which is another reason our products taste so different. Um, basically we don't compromise at all. So for example, the lemongrass, we had literally had my parents involved, like speaking to different distributors who um, helped us import lemongrass from Vietnam instead of some of the different types of lemongrass that um, some of the more like kind of like Western suppliers would send to us that would just be like not the right type or they would take the wrong part of the lemongrass and include it. So not to get too into the weeds, but it was just like um, a lot of being super detail oriented and kind of like vigilant about getting the right ingredients um, to make it taste right. We're also obsessed with your brand and your packaging. And when we, after we were eating this larb and like raving about it, my husband was reading the back of your box and he was like, this content's really good. This content's really good, um, which is something that's very near and dear to the two of us. Um, How did you think about approaching this brand and creating this like very bold and just like enthusiastic uh, brand identity? Thank you so much for, for your kind words and tell your husband, thank you as well. Oh my God, that like made me so happy. Um, yeah, I guess like if you, I would just like point to our name. I think kind of everything flows from that. So Om Sam is not a, is not a real word, um, but it originates in the Vietnamese term Om Sam, which kind of roughly translates to like rowdy or rambunctious. So like when Vanessa and I were younger, like in the back of my parents' car on like a road trip or something, and we're just like going bonkers back there. <laughs> Um, my mom would turn around and be like, oh my gosh, don't be so um <laughs> And it was quite like a, a negative, you know, like you're chastising someone essentially. And as we were thinking about our company name, we loved this idea of reclaiming that, like reclaiming that noise, reclaiming that kind of like in your face, I don't care energy, because particularly, and like this feels more relevant now than ever, Asian American communities have been, you know, stereotyped as being like silent or a model minority, invisible, submissive. Um, and that's kind of flowed through the way um, that we think about that aisle, mm-hmm. right? And so we were just like, let's just be the opposite of that. Like, let's just show what full-fledged, real deal Asian flavors, but also community and culture is like. And so once we had that idea of like proud and loud and a little bit kind of rowdy, noisy, it became really easy then to be like, okay, well then our brand should map to that. So like, let's bring in these colors that are, you know, rooted in Southeast Asian um, fruits and vegetables, but also feel kind of like fun and perhaps a little clashy Um, that flows through the user experience that there's a lot, you know, on our website where there's a lot going on. um, We really kind of want to pull that thread all the way through and hopefully kind of that shows up to your door. You guys are so articulate both through your branding and through talking right now about how, what your bigger goal is with Amsam, like what this means beyond just being a sauce. And it makes me so curious about what your sort of longer term plans are for the company. Like what can we expect from Amsam? Is it more sauces? Is it different food categories? Is it other cultures? 
do we get snacks? <laughs> do we get snacks? <laughs> <laughs> You're not the first person to ask. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we started the company on the exact kind of like mission and ethos that we're explaining to you today. It, like, yeah, a year and a half ago, that's exactly where we started. And and that will kind of reign true, I think, throughout our, our whole journey. Um, as far as like what that looks like, I think in the shorter term, we're really excited. We're working on an East Asian line. So Japanese, Korean, and Chinese are in the works right now. Um, and we're super excited to hopefully bring that to you all like later in the fall. But then beyond that, you know, I think it's really being close to our customers and, and answering kind of what they need and want. But we definitely are really excited about snacks. For example, we know that um, there's definitely a need for that. Um, but beyond that, yeah, we just want to make it really easy for folks to cook Asian food and connect with Asian culture in a meaningful way. So however that kind of, you know, is, is what people want, like however that kind of shows up, I think we would be flexible to that. But ultimately, we would love to be an authority in Asian food products and grocery. Like we want to be, I don't, there are a couple like awesome, awesome brands in the space, but um, really excited to like a brand that other, um, that Asians kind of look to as, as some, some, a brand they're proud to be represented by. Love that so much. How has it been working with each other? <laughs> yes, that's, I love this question because every time people are like, people are like, yeah, say it out loud. Oh, we'll ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's both amazing and also at times, you know, as, as co-founders do, we'll, we'll butt heads. But I would say like, for sure, there's nobody that I would rather build a company with. I think because this company comes from the heart, it's like more meaningful for both of us as sisters to work on it together because it's like even that much more, we're even that much more passionate about it. Um, but for sure, I would say as sisters, we have petty stuff that comes up that we, you know, that we can kind of trace back to like the teenage years and like, you know, we were still going through puberty and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, I would say it's just like this really amazing challenge as sisters that we have to um, show up for each other, be open, be vulnerable to kind of work through anything that comes up. But yeah, we, we are, a, I think a really strong team. And yeah. you two live together? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> good, 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 good. Um, what have you learned about each other through working together? Hmm. I think I've learned that we're really different. Like I always knew like as sisters growing up, like, oh yeah, you know, we're different, whatever. But like we never, you, all that gets put to the test when you actually work together. Um, so I think it's just become really clear, like, oh, like right brain, left brain, like data driven, more creative. Like it's been, it's been really fun and also challenging to kind of see those differences rise um, and trying to in, reframe them as like a post like, oh my God, you're so different from me, but like, oh my gosh, like how can we complement each other and, and kind of cover each other's backs? That has been like a very fun learning journey that both of our therapists and life coaches have heard a lot about. <laughs> so. <laughs> we know the feeling. Yeah. Um, I'm so curious because, so one of the things you guys do that I love so much to get back to your branding for a minute is you include recipe cards with the sauces. And especially with the LARB, I was like, I've got to follow this to a T. This is nothing I've ever cooked at home before. And it came out perfectly. But I also love that you're so encouraging of getting creative with the sauce and doing other things with it. And you have recipes on the website that are different from the sort of traditional preparations. And I'm curious if there are really creative ways you're seeing people use these sauces or ways you think we should think about using these sauces? Like, should these be dips? Should I be mixing it with something else and making it a condiment? 
yeah, that's super. Well, that's really interesting. So yeah, I mean, you know, the starters at the end of the day are just meant to serve as kind of like the foundational flavor for, for a specific dish. So they kind of kind of they cover the end to end of flavor for that dish. So whether you would need like sauces, citruses, oils, spices, vinegars, all of that's kind of like covered and in and, and that starter pack already. But yeah, from there, like you said, we really encourage flexibility. We've definitely seen people get creative with them. We saw someone to use um, one of them with like ravioli though. I think they use a large sauce oh, with yeah. ravioli. Some people have been putting it on pasta because mm. like, it's still like a noodle carb yep. base. And people have definitely been mixing it with other things too. Someone did a seitan sea sig the other yes, day, which yeah. is really interesting. On shirataki meat noodles, which is really yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, so people are definitely getting really creative with it and they're sharing it on social. So we do get to see all of it. And so I was like, I don't know if my grandma would be pumped about this, but I, <laughs> but I mean, like, I think they said something like, I think it was she like made a mushroom, a mushroom season. season. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, and it's all looking so delicious. So yeah, we definitely encourage it and are seeing a lot of variations. And that's really why we created this format is because we knew that where people were struggling was the flavor and the hard to find ingredients, but what they need is the flexibility. Like that's kind of what like today's consumer wants in the kitchen. And so we were like, okay, how can we just like make it dead easy, but still leave it open-ended. What are you two cooking right now besides Omsom? I am using my Dutch oven a lot. Um, even though it's like warm, I'm not really going outside that much. So just, I, I love that. Like, cause we're working from home. I can like get something started in the afternoon. And then by the time I'm ready for dinner, it's been like simmering and it's like the flavors are melded and it's gorgeous and like the right texture, um, versus like normally I'd come home at like seven and not even touch a Dutch oven on a right. weeknight. So that's kind of been one of the things that I've been speaking in some stews and yeah, braised, um, meats and stuff. I've just been living in like comfort food zone, you know, like I just think, you know, that the world's going through a trauma <laughs> and I kind of, you know, want to like hug myself with food. And so I've been cooking a lot of pork belly. I love pork belly. It's like my favorite thing in the world. I want to get it tattooed on me one day. <laughs> um, so like stewing, frying, braising, I'm just finding different ways to cook pork belly. Um, and then I also made my first ever grilled cheese. Like grilled cheese was something we ate growing up as first generation Vietnamese Americans, but I made my first one and I was like, the key is yes, mayo on yes, the bread. Yes. I had no idea. Yep. It's so rediscovering Americana <laughs> kind of comfort food. So decadent <laughs> and so delicious. Yeah. Um, are there cookbooks that you guys really love that we should know about? Hmm. Or other oh, chefs so that nice. we should just be following yes. on Instagram? We love, of course, um, Nicole Ponseca, who's one of our tastemakers. Her cookbook, um, I'm a Filipino, is absolutely one of my favorites. I'm not saying that, even though I'm definitely biased. <laughs> um, before we even worked with her, like I bought it and read it cover to cover because it's just this wonderful, it's not only like a resource for like, okay, how do I make a certain dish? It's also this incredible, almost like ethnographically written um, book where you learn about the history of the Philippines, kind of the, the history with colonization and how that impacts the flavors and the, the influences from Spanish cuisine, from Mexican cuisine, from Chinese cuisine. Um, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I kind of love thinking about food at the intersection of like culture and narratives and history. Um, and I think the book does a wonderful job of engaging engaging. Um, readers in that way. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of that one. The cookbook I'm currently reading through is, I, I used to live in London. So Deshume mm. um, recently released their cookbook, I, I guess last fall, and it's gorgeous. It's really gorgeous. But like, definitely, you know, and you need to invest time getting the right ingredients for it. It's not meant to be like a quick weekday meal, <laughs> but a, a gorgeous, if not sometimes academic. Yeah. <laughs> um, love this. 
you two, we are such fans of yours. Cannot like wait to follow everything you're doing. We're basically consider us pre-ordered for your fall releases. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Can I ask a question? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So why did you two immediately um, gravitate towards LARP? Would love to understand more like why that was the one that you both grabbed. So I didn't know what seasick was for one. I, it was a dish mm-hmm. I wasn't familiar with. And two, I Fish Cheeks is one of my all-time favorite restaurants. I love it so much. Mm-hmm. And Thai cuisine also is just like my go-to and something that I haven't had since I've been being in quarantine because I haven't really been ordering takeout. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just like, I love the flavor of larb. And sometimes I don't order it out at Thai because it, it, it will be too spicy for me. And I just sort of trusted that this, mm-hmm. that I was going to be able to handle this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I made it because, well, for a couple of reasons. One, um, the my dad loves LARB and my family like really loves LARB. And so it felt like the one that I was like, oh, I'm the most excited to try. Also, I wanted to make it with tofu and it's really hard to find vegetarian mm-hmm. versions of LARB. I don't know that I had had one before. So that felt like a fun thing. Mm-hmm. And the weather just felt like right to have something light and like kind of like salady. I don't know. It was also really satisfying to realize how simple it was to make. Like I was like, oh, I just (laughs) mandolined some shallots and some um, scallions and like that was, and then chopped up some herbs and that was it with the chicken. I mean, obviously it's because of the sauce that you made that it was so easy. Because you've done all the work. (laughs) Yeah. But I was, and then I just couldn't, I was like, this just tastes like at the restaurant. It's so good. I was like, I couldn't get over it. It So good. Um, oh my gosh, that's thank you so much for sharing that. Also, first off, can I just note that you're like, oh, it's so easy, and you whipped out a mandolin. I love <laughs> I that. It's so easy. Simple well, a mandolin is, is way well, easier than actually chopping. Yeah. yeah, that's actually true. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I just love that you just like casually had one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. We really are so excited for you guys. I feel like, well, if you can't tell, we like really love food and really love sauces in general, like in bold flavors. And Yay. yeah, it's we were so excited about it before it came, and then that it was so good was like, um, and started by two women and all of it. You know, we love a work-wife duo. So um, yeah, we are really, really here for it. Well, that's the show. This has been a production of Dear Media. You can follow us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. You can listen to us wherever podcasts are found like Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify. If you have ideas for the show or want to advertise, email podcast at claireandarica.com. Find show notes and coupon codes and so much more at clarinerica.com.